Welcome to the Outrageous and Vulnerable Podcast, where shift happens. This is a podcast about shaking things up in parenting, education, disability, and beyond. I'm your host, Cynthia Coupe, parent, longtime disability advocate, and speech language pathologist. I can't wait to meet you on the front lines, of course. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Frank Menems. And Frank has spent the last 20, sorry, the past 30 years working with teens and young adults. The first 15 years, he was working with at-risk teens. And the last 15 years, he's been working with the alternatively abled community. He graduated from University of California, Davis in biopsychology and has a master's in counseling psychology and also a master's in educational counseling. So um, it's funny, Frank is actually not only my business partner, but also my husband. So I don't usually get to introduce him on a professional level, but I also don't usually get to sit in my living room and interview somebody. So this is kind of fun. But um, the reason why we're doing it this way is because, like I said, Frank is also my business partner. And um, we have spent the past three or four years. How long would you say that it's been? Four years? Four years putting together um, a business. And we see clients that um, all are alternatively abled, particularly ones that are uh, teens and young adults on the autism spectrum. So um, we've had a lot of really great discussions about our beliefs and where we're going and what we're doing. And I, I just kind of wanted to give a piece of that. So one of the questions that I had for you, Frank, is that you and I have talked a lot about advocacy for the populations that we work with, particularly when it comes to the yearly IEP meetings. Um, for those who don't know, IEP stands for Individual Education Plan. And any student in a school system who needs supports um, from speech therapy to reading to um, math support or behavioral support would be on an IEP. And um, I used to work in the schools as a speech therapist, and Frank used to support the uh, California Regional Center in the school setting, and that's actually where we first met. So one thing that I know we're both really passionate about is advocating for the students and for the populations we serve. So um, what I was wondering, Frank, is what advocacy looks like to you? What I've seen in the classroom and when people are um, attending the IEP meetings for their children, one, often the children or the child isn't present um, to advocate for themselves for their own future. And people argue, well, they're just not, you know, um, present enough or knowing. Like they don't realize what's going on. I think I've heard that a lot or it doesn't really matter to them or. Sure. And and that actually legally they have to start attending, I believe at age 15. Right. It's sometime in high school. Yeah. So legally, but people would argue that from um, actually, you know, kindergarten, first grade, if you're talking to the child in, um, in respect to what their future can be presented with, you know, what, what accommodations, um, what special things that could be used with them to help them navigate their, their learning 
styles, um, whether, you know, in math or sorting or whatever it is. So the thing that I've seen in IEPs is that usually parents come in doe-eyed, um, really not knowing what their rights are, feeling like the school has their best interests out for them and agreeing basically to everything that the school will say and just, okay, that sounds great. Not knowing and, and not to be a cynical, but the school has a budget and they have um, fiscal and monetary concerns. So they're going to try their best to um, be as prudent with their dollars as possible. And so the and, and they're not being, um, they're not trying to withhold anything from the students. They're just looking at what they're able to pr provide through a fiscal lens, which is not uh, the reality of the parents' rights. The parents have rights and the children has rights. And so um, if, if the child is entitled to a speech therapist or to a physical therapist, that's the school's obligation. They are bound by law to provide those services. services to the child. And so what I see a lot is parents just going in thinking that the schools are going to do everything in their, you know, power to make um, their child's experience a really productive one. And in fiscal lens, that's true. But in the legal lens, it's not true. I mean, well, I will also say that that's, that's not always true either. So because I've worked on the school side a lot, and I think that the school's do often, I mean, we do have the best interests of a child, but there's a lot of constraints that we have that, um, that aren't always realized. So, so one thing is that the services we provide have to be educationally based. And so that can be very difficult sometimes, um, from the school side, as well as from the parent side to kind of suss that out. Right. So, so if a parent wants, you know, their child to be, um, I don't know. I can't really think of a great one, but if they want their child to be um, doing something above and beyond that wouldn't really affect them at school, we can't say, oh, we can, we can make them do that. You know, sure. like, let's say that they're like, well, I want them to have this specialized training and well, we don't need to give them the specialized training, you know, like uh, a brand name training. Um, anyhow, it gets, it gets a little. No. And, and I understand, I, I completely understand that. And, Coming from a family who, you know, I have a, two sisters that were educators and one who was an administrator. Um, so I, I get the limitations and I feel like I was, I was a welcome presence in IEP meetings because I advocated for the child, but I also knew what was, you know, un, unreasonable. Yes. And so to be able to, to come to a reasonable agreement and yes, um, you know, the client may not get everything they need, but by the same token, the school district is kind of yes. getting rousted and, and having to be creative and, and come up with yeah. um, certain things. So Yeah, no, I absolutely. absolutely agree with you. I mean, definitely, I would say, you know, and this is definitely getting off the topic of advocacy that we were um, initially talking about, but it is a really important topic. So one of the things that um, that parents should know, because I guess it is a part of advocacy in in that way, is that when you go into an IEP meeting, know that you can ask for whatever you want and know that the school can say no, but you can also not take their no for an answer. You, there are supports that are available to you um, that will help you understand 
if it's reasonable what you're asking for. And those wouldn't necessarily be school personnel that would be answering those questions for you. That would be, um, in our district, we call it the yellow folder that every parent is given at the beginning of the year uh, at, the, I, at the annual IEP meetings. And it's basically an advocacy folder telling you who you can contact if you have questions about your services. And um, it's really important to make those contacts if you have questions. And your local SELPA. Yes, your is... your local SELPA, which is the, I can't remember what SELPA stands for. Yeah, we should know. Yeah. But anyhow, it's called SELPA. Hmm. Um, we'll get back to you that on the notes. Um, but that's one type of advocacy is having parents really understand what their rights and responsibilities are. Um, but the other type of advocacy that we started talking about was, was like Frank was saying, is not having the child present in the IEP meetings. Um, and that that's really missing out on a huge part for this individual's life, right? Like I can say from my standpoint, um, I've worked with children in the school system, you know, from preschool through high school and I'll get kids in fifth grade, sixth grade that have been in speech therapy since they were in, you know, kindergarten and don't know why they're there. They don't really know what they're working on. And these are kids that, have the cognitive ability to understand what they're working on. Some of them are just working on their R sound or their S sound. And, uh, you know, I'll say, okay, so what are you working on? What sound are you working on? I don't know. And they, and they really don't know. It's not that they're checked out. It's like nobody's sat them down and told them that before. So it's really important because if a child is aware of it, then, then they can be part of it, right? They know what they need. Um, so Frank, I was wondering, how would you describe what advocacy can be for a family? You know, so families that are asking for what they want, families that are bringing their kids to the IEP meetings. Did you see any of that? Sure. Well, I've I've seen um, relative to the amount of IEPs I've been present at. Mm -hmm. No, I mean a really small percentage of the IEPs had the children present, um, but the parents that did advocate for their kids, those kids. Um, sure were more active mm -hmm. and um in their own future mm -hmm. they were they were um able to come up with ideas of what they really wanted mm -hmm. um and it was it just seemed like a much more they had many more facets to to explore within their own life in some ways it was just yeah. kind of more of a normal life it's like they have buy in to their own life, right? I mean, sure, essentially, sure, absolutely, right? um, and and they had an elevated sense of responsibility for their own what the outcomes were going mm -hmm. to be. Um, they took more responsibility for saying, "Hey, I want this," mm -hmm. um, and not people saying, "Hey, wouldn't you like this?" Right. Um, they had a better idea of what they wanted, and it also leaves the guesswork out. I've noticed with my own daughter who comes to her IEP meetings. She's been on IEP since second grade. Um, I think the first IEP she attended of her own was in third grade. Uh, even though I talked to her about the second grade one, I don't remember her being there. It's possible that she was, but, um, what I see is that we'll be guessing on things. Like, I think that I know her really well and I think her teachers know her fairly well and, you know, we'll be explaining 
things and then she'll step in and say, no, that's not why this is happening. And this is why this is happening. Mm -hmm. And this is actually what the problem is or what support I need. And it's, it's enlightening because she's been encouraged to know herself well enough that she can advocate for what she needs. And then the supports can be there to help her rather than me guessing. And I think that I'm guessing correctly, but I'm not always guessing correctly. Um, and so then the school doesn't always understand. And, and also I think it helps the school hear it from the child's perspective because, um, it makes it more real rather than just a parent saying, my kid needs to have this, you know, and the school being like, okay, mm-hmm. mom, we'll give you whatever your kid needs. Sure. Uh, you know, it's really powerful having it actually come from the child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I was also wondering, have you seen any shifts in your career in terms of advocacy as time has gone on? And I know that you've worked, you know, in different facets, so that might be difficult to under to to evaluate. But well, absolutely. I mean, there there just like ten years ago, the whole concept of bringing your child or having a student led IEP, which is trending, but it's gone up. You know, the, the mm-hmm. popularity has increased and then fell off again. But, you know, working on the coast, um, so I was working two counties, Lake and Mendo County, for the regional center. And, and I was going to IEPs inland where um, it was the, the, the kiddos were leading their own IEPs. They'd have a slideshow. They'd present what their desires were and their dreams and what they wanted to do. And um, it really create a different sense within the whole IEP. Mm-hmm. Everyone was there to support the, the child. There was, I felt like we were all underneath them, lifting them. And on the coast, it wasn't so much. We had a, a previous director that, you know, I had conversations with and she brought it onto the coast and I saw it becoming more and more um, imperative. And it, um, I know Fort Bragg High School is using it. Um, their SPED um, direct or SPED teachers is using that yeah. format. So I've seen an increase in um, the students taking responsibility for their for the direction of their IEP. When and, they're older, primarily. When they're older, right? when, in, mm-hmm. in high school. And to some degree in the middle school, I was seeing it as well. I've seen it in middle school in our inland, in our inland schools, mm-hmm. in some of one in particular. Um, and that's because, you know, that particular special ed teacher really believed in that, but, you know, and I'd say for myself, I've been in and out of the schools for, you know, almost 20 years. Um, Colorado, where I first started, kids were never there, but parents often weren't there either. Um, they just wouldn't show up to the IEP meeting and, you know, we'd legally have to cancel it, but if they didn't show, um, I think twice, then we could hold it without them, you know, and, and this is again, going back 20 years and in a different state, but, but that was, um, you know, alarming to me. And what I also see in terms of advocacy is that, um, oftentimes I think because of cultural differences, um, I don't see very many Hispanic families advocating as much as I would like, because I think it's the paradigm of that the schools know everything and the specialist knows everything. And, um, I would really love, you know, and that's not always the case. Sometimes I, I definitely see, you know, the Hispanic family has, 
has an advocate with them. Maybe it's a translator mm-hmm. or maybe it's another family member or another, um, you know, sure. community member that has gone through the same process and says, no, you need to, you know, you have this ability, but, um, but it's really, really, yeah, it is. And, and I agree with you. It is changing some with the older grades. I would say, you know, having kids come to their own meetings though, um, it's always nice, but it's not always encouraged. So the schools aren't reminding the parents to have the kids come. Sure. So the parents don't know to have the kids come. But um, but I think it's really, really, really important. Yeah. So, I mean, the question being, you know, what's changed? Well, that that's changed. And, and I think, um, you know, it's like anything else you have. It's a roller coaster. You have the, the peaks and the valleys. The baseline is increasing. It's not increasing to the point where we'd like to see every IEP with every kid in it. Um, but it is, it's improving. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also parents need advocates at their meetings. Yeah. And, um, and I am a CAC, a child advocate um, on the child advocacy council. And, um, and I have not, you know, in the years that I've been do- on that council, I've never been asked to attend an IEP for a parent. Right. And, and so, I, so just to clarify what the CAC council is, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Well, we, we are, um, aligned or affiliated with SELPA. It's, it's a part of SELPA <clears throat> and we're parents that either have children, um, that have IEPs or work with children, you know, and, and in my case, now I have both. Um, I work with children in IEPs and have a mm-hmm. daughter, um, with an IEP, um, and so we are, we attend council meetings, um, the, the board meetings for, with the superintendents to listen to policy. Um, and you have a state meeting once a year too, right? So you go exactly. and you talk and with. And that's with SELPA. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we meet, you know, with our, our, um, state senators and, and representatives talk about legislation and, um, what's going through. We, I guess, you know, lobby um, mm-hmm. them and, um, yeah. So, so we're, we're a organized group of concerned parents and, um, educators that are available for parents to tap into when they go to an IEP, they can contact their SELPA office in, in Ukiah and request that someone be at their IEP to help them and advocate for them. Yeah. And, and this is also, you know, we live in um, Mendocino County in rural Northern California, but this is something that's available statewide. statewide. Absolutely. And I'm not sure actually countrywide. It should be. I don't know. I don't But know. there are different levels of advocacy in all states. Um, I know for California, this is our, this is how it works for California. Yeah. Um, all right. So how about hurdles and benefits to advocacy or self-advocacy hurdles or benefits well the hurdles are you know again the school districts have a fiscal you know it's it's maddening because i feel that education is is you know our future and it is usually the first thing to get um dinged through budget constraints you know, monies are pulled from school districts first, and, and I just don't understand that. And for the amount of time and energy that teachers put into their job, they're paid just ridiculous wages, I feel, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone says, well, but they get benefits and everything. And it's I, I just, 
there's they're you know aside from you know health i mean they're in the same realm as health providers because this is our future these are our children that we trust these educators with why wouldn't you want to um provide the best uh, compensation for their efforts and so what i'm seeing is that the teachers are not paid near enough um hurdles and so the school districts have to watch their budgets and so um there is you know just a constraint on available services especially in rural school districts where the there's there is one district where their income is based on property taxes but there's a very few in all the state if it's based on just um it's usually just based on how many students you have yeah, in your yes school yes yes um mm-hmm. or the daily yeah. you know so yeah so hurdles to advocacy or self advocacy that that to me sounds a little tangential but it but it's important it is a hurdle to services sure but, that, um, yes and so what it comes down to in thinking about these questions is that if you go south and to um you know, kind of wealthier counties. Um, you know, I understand that, you know, there's counties down South that basically everyone brings their attorneys. And so, you know, the mm-hmm. district brings their attorneys, the parents mm-hmm. bring their attorneys, everyone's, you know, lawyered up and it's, it's this, um, contentious, mm-hmm. um, you know, crazy, stressful battle. Sort battle. Of. Yeah. The point being is that mm-hmm. the attorneys are all there and for an attorney to be there, you need a lot of money. And so the point being is that the problem, even with parents unable to attend the IEPs, is that if they are working two or three jobs or even one job that they don't have time off, that mm-hmm. they don't, they can't come to the IEPs. They can't self-advocate because they're trying to make a living. You know, they're, I mean, it's just so it gets into the socioeconomic where you see these really wealthy districts with these really amazing services and these parents that are, you know, helicopter, you know, attorneys in their, you know, in the parenting of the IEP. And it's, and then you come to, you know, rural California. And if you can get the parent there because they have to work and then the school district has, you know, zero funds for, you know, after school programs, um, yeah, you know, and so so it it gets into that socioeconomic um, thing where those are some of the biggest constraints because, you know, some people are just grateful that their child gets to attend school. Right. Yeah. So I, I think also, sorry to interrupt you, but I I want to kind of bring it back. So what I'm what I'm hearing a lot of is barriers to services, and so what this makes me think of is services and how do we look at when a child needs services and what how is that done and so really our model that we follow i mean you know that has always been followed as is a medical model so looking at what's broken and as a result of that i feel like clients grow up not knowing their strengths only knowing their weaknesses right and i think that that's also a barrier to um to advocacy because if you're if you have something, you know, quote unquote wrong with you and you're told, oh, you, you can't talk. That's, that's not good. You, that's wrong with you. Let's get you to normal. So as a speech pathologist, 
my training was in the medical model. So looking at what is wrong and trying to get that to normal, right? So you can't make this sound or you can't talk or you, you know, you're not able Mm -hmm. to think in this way. What would a typically developing person be doing? Let's try to get you as close as we can to there. That that inherently kind of shuts down self-advocacy because a person isn't taught to, to celebrate or acknowledge their strengths. It's just taught, oh, I'm broken. Here's what I need to fix. And I think families are also in the same, oh gosh, you know, we have this shame on us. We have like this kid that can't do this thing. Um, And so I really feel like that self-advocacy and parental advocacy and even, you know, school advocacy could really improve of course, we have to use the medical model to to get a child's services. You know, we have to say this is what's wrong with them to get them on an IEP. But once we know that, we really can switch to a social model or to a strengths-based approach, which is where um, we look at what is going right and then improve that and then look at areas for strengthening as well. You know, it doesn't just mean, oh, you're naturally, you know, you can't talk, you never will. Let's just go play ball because you like doing that. That's that's not what this model is, but it's like, okay, well, you can't talk, but you might like to. What do you like doing? Let's focus on that. Let's get yourself, you know, aware of what it is that that you want to be aware of and the families as well so that we, there's less stigma, I think. Um, I think the medical model creates that. And I think that also in your professional life, you really do work towards breaking down these models. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what you do with your clients now and what are those outcomes that you're seeing? Sure. And and I just, I want to state, I was thinking mm-hmm. of a couple of families in particular, Latino families that um, I think that they didn't want to come to IEPs because of the medical model. Mm-hmm. And they saw their child mm-hmm. as brilliant, beautiful things. Mm-hmm. And when they came to the IEP, it was all about the, the brokenness. And mm-hmm. so I, especially I'm thinking of one dad in particular mm-hmm. and um, he just, he hated IEPs mm-hmm. because his daughter was brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and um, you know, she had some pretty severe, you know, physical limitations and mm-hmm. he just, he wasn't hearing it. He was not hearing it. And mm-hmm. um, you know, in a positive way, he's like, whatever she look at what she can dance, you know, she mm-hmm. can, you know, and so he was like not hearing right. the, the constraints that the IEP mm-hmm. was, you know, presenting to him. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, yeah, you know, I agree with is, that. It was a real powerful thing. And so, so that being said, if you can introduce in a compassionate way, the medical model saying, look, these are the constraints. This is what we want to do. Of course, your child is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so we just want to give her more opportunities to be able to dovetail into what it is she wants to do. And, and mm-hmm. if we could, you know, get a brace or, you know, something mm-hmm. that could enable her to stand mm-hmm. erect or, you know, that mm-hmm. would help her even more versus saying, you know, she's broken. Maybe we can get her to stand. We don't know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and have this negative connotation on the. Right. And know. also like focusing on, Hey, she loves to dance. This would actually improve her dancing ability. Yes. Not just, Oh, she'll be able to stand in isolation for 15 minutes by the end of the school year. It's just right. like, what, what, <laughs> good as that. Yeah, like, right. But if you say, Hey, you know what? She's going to be able to finish two dances with you, dad, you know, mm-hmm. without needing to take a break because of fatigue. Like, okay, you might have more buy-in there from everybody involved and you're going to have, you're going to be addressing the same problem. Exactly. It's just from an area of strength and interest, which exactly. is yeah. extremely important. Exactly. And so what my, my 
tact is is within the really within the speech um, framework is is social pragmatics, and so I just um, work with my clients in a really natural naturalistic setting setting right? I mean, environment, yeah. and um, and work on their strengths, and in doing so, you're always going to come across. Um, aspects that they need working on so there's there's the adjustment and hey you know you know if you're gonna pick your nose don't wipe it on your shirt you know right, yeah. here's a tissue you know and oh yeah and, and you know and you just really simple things that mm -hmm. you know they they've got like 99 percent of their um you know public social face on except that nose picking thing you know it's yeah. like dude and <laughs> so so just that but by taking them in a naturalistic environment and increasing their confidence, that opens up their whole world. All of a sudden, there's mm -hmm. they're getting positive responses from their environment. And again, you can break this down into a scientific, you know, a stimulus response, you know, aspect. But you know, in the humanistic realm and in the social model, it's that they are they are feeling their self-esteem is getting mm -hmm. boosted and boosted. And, and, and if you look at Maslow's triangle, mm -hmm. you know, their base is getting thicker and thicker and thicker and they're believing in themselves and in their abilities. And, um, and Maslow's, that's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what Frank is talking yes. about. So the base of the triangle is the, the needs like shelter and love. I don't remember. Yeah. Exactly yeah. Just, well, Maslow's, it's, it's but, shelter, food, you know, those, mm -hmm. but it, then, then it's building up to, self-confidence. So after you have that, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. if you don't have your basic human needs, then it's going to be really hard to improve in other areas, including like having a job or having friends or, um, feeling successful. Um, and then something that we've been talking a lot about recently, and this, this is kind of all tying into it, even though I didn't, didn't have this, um, on our topic to begin with, but our company that we've started, um, is called ORS, which stands for Outreach, Advocacy, Resources, and Services. And we've been talking a lot about what our mission and our vision is for that because, um, because we really want to finesse it. And, and this kind of all plays into that. So what we really feel is focusing on something that isn't a medical model, but where we do outreach. We do outreach towards community members to, you know, to partnerships. Like Frank, one of the things that he does is he... Um, takes clients on bike rides. And so one of the, we haven't done this yet, but one of the possible outreaches would be, you know, reaching out to maybe, um, a bike outfitter and saying, Hey, you know, we have these students, could you supply some helmets or, you know, rent us some bikes or, you know, but, but basically making community connections. So what that does is it also gives our clients the possibility of interacting with, other community members through something they enjoy. So they like bike riding. Okay. They get to go to the bike rental store and they get to like ask for the bike that it is that they want to have. Sure. Um, and then in that is advocacy. Yes, absolutely. Right. I mean, that's, 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 that's kind of next stage of what we're doing now, even, um, but COVID has kind of put a crimp in it, but we, we did have two or three guys going out um, on a bike ride and we would run into other people that we knew, um, was one thing Two, attire, like, okay, so we're going to go ride a bike today. What do you need to do? Okay. You need to have pants that fit. You need to have a shirt that we need your helmet. Is it cold? You know, and just getting them into just again, that lower, you know, level of 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but, you know, taking care of yourself, making sure we have water and just mm -hmm. setting them up for a win on this bike ride. And then we have bikes that are functional, that have gears that if we're getting to a hill, they have a lower gear, you know, it's success, 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 but it's incumbent upon them. So they feel like they did what they needed to do to be successful, boosting their self-esteem, their self-confidence. You know, we just rode 10 miles and it was, we, it was easy. And then we saw Paul and John and Susie and we had a great talk and then we got to have our little picnic, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like this amazing thing. And it's not just, it's not a social outing. It's really a social pragmatic exercise. And, and, but it looks, you know, they feel like it's a social outing, but the reinforcement that they're getting in all these essential skills is you, you just can't, um, you can't take them into a classroom where you can't tell them, that yeah, you right know, you can't parse it out and be like well i really want them to be able to let's set up a conversation if you ran into Susie on the street right, what right. would you say and it's like well you could rehearse that in a clinical setting all day long and then run into Susie on the street and like not know what to say yeah because it just there's so much that happens in those natural environments that it's so rich you know, Absolutely. such a rich environment yeah right. like you're yeah. saying from like what you're going to wear to what things you need to have with you to what you're going to ask the person when you're renting the bike to what you're going to say, you and know, what you on your left, you know, yeah, cause we're, right. we're in the, and, and, you know, these hall road or wherever we are, there are a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, passing on your left. Okay. When we mm -hmm. passing on your right, Oh, someone's coming on our left. Someone's right. coming on or, right. Oh, I think my bike has a flat tire. What do I do that? You know, like, right. like self-advocacy there too. So, so you have the outreach with community connections. You have the advocacy of the individual, you know, learning what their needs are and then being able to ask for them themselves. Then you have the resources. So again, you know, connecting them to places that they can, go, you know, mm -hmm. whether that be biking. Okay. Well, Hey, maybe you'd be interested in kayaking. Maybe you can try that out. Or what would you think about hiking? Like, you know, the more the resources that they try, the more that they get interested in, the more they want access to. And then through that, we provide the services that, that support their communication and cognitive needs. So right. it's like this, you know, we've been talking about this like upward spiral, then the more that they get access to this, the more that access builds. And then also the more the community sees our people. And, and, you know, whether it be that they're out on the hall road and they're saying hi to all these people or whether it be that, you know, they've made connections with the kayak company and the bike riding company. And, and so, you know, there's more community support and understanding for our, you know, neurodivergent clients as well. Absolutely. And, and to pull in the medical model too, is that the beauty of working with, you know, because we do have to have, you know, our, we, we are connected to a medical. Yeah, we have to have too. a diagnosis. So we, we need the diagnosis, but also, you know, granted, this is a social um, milieu that we're interfacing with, but we do have goals. Mm -hmm. And so we can, we can take those interactions and quantify them. Mm -hmm. And it's much easier, you know, it's, and, and I think much more realistic to take the interaction and quantify versus seeking a number out in you know, in the environment. So, you know, Billy must talk to Susie three times, right? you know, so we'll go, where's Susie, you know, and, you know, we can't go out and hunt for that number three, but we can go out there and, and number yeah. that those three interactions happen. And so we, we do have goals. We do have, you know, goals that we're meeting 
and um, and and so we can quantify, you know, the progress. So not only do we have a, a more, you know, a, someone who's more adjusted mm-hmm. to the their community and and their environment and yeah. the, the, and putting together what it is they need to do to get mm-hmm. what they want, right. but then we can see on paper you know, so-and-so is working so, or they're able to be, you know, to put together their own bicycling or hiking or whatever experience they want to put together and quantify those successes and, or, you know, failures. And then what do we need to, you know, work on? Um, But the approaching it from a humanistic, more naturalistic manner to me, and I, and, you know, studies, which, show that the the way it stays with the individual versus just a, a rote learning. Oh yeah, it's supported a hundred percent. Like yeah. that that when you know there's a lot of, or not a lot, but there's definitely a good handful of studies out there about people on the autism spectrum that are doing, you know, uh social groups or whatever, any kind of groups in the outdoor setting. So um you know, hiking, biking, kayaking, whatever, whatever it is, um, that there's, they're happier, they make better progress. You know, there's, there's a lot of barriers that are broken down in that process. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, anytime a human is treated like a human and not a, you know, something wrong with you, the the better result you're going to, to get, you know? And I mean, I don't know. I think that's, that's definitely one thing that, has always bothered me about my profession. Like there's several, there's several jobs that I've stepped into where I'm taking over for somebody because they've retired or they've moved or, you know, and I'm, I'm very realistic in my goals. I've always, you know, okay. So maybe studies say that you should practice this sound a hundred times a day. Are you going to do that? And some people might say, oh yeah, I'll do that. Great. Cool. I know that's going to work for you. But if it's not going to work for you and you don't do anything, then nothing's going to work for you. So I've always really wanted to take things and make them practical. You know, what will work for you and what do you like doing? Because if that sound shows up in the word ball and you like to play ball, then let's get you outside and play ball. You know, um, that's going to work a lot better than like stand here and say, but a hundred times, you know, and I'm making up goals, but but the idea mm-hmm. I'm not making up, you know, and then clients I've, I've seen families and I've seen individuals, you know, from children to, to, you know, elderly stroke patients just be like this wave of relief comes over them. Like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like this is so much better. Cause it's, it's really stressful. I mean, we've all been in rehabilitation of one kind or another, you know, you hurt your knee or your shoulder and, and, you know, your therapist wants you to do these exercises mm-hmm. that you do or don't do. And you feel bad when you know you're not doing them, but when they're made to be practical and obtainable, then it's just, it's so much better. And the mm-hmm. same is true for our clients. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're, when they're having fun, it doesn't feel like work. Right. Right. You know, right. and, and when it has a practical end in mind too, it also doesn't feel like work. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like, um, value, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. and being valued. Yeah. Yeah, there's something uh, I was just I think about hippotherapy, equine, you know, yeah, horse horses, therapy, horse, mm-hmm. and um, and just watching you know, uh, eighty pound or one hundred and twenty pound kid on a twelve hundred pound animal, <laughs> directing it, you know, telling it to go left, to right, you know, or just riding it, and talk about being present. All of a sudden, this kid is really aware, and you can have, 
you know, I've seen kids that just seem like they're, you know, so not present, not mm-hmm. present. You And you, if they're able to get on a horse or even lead a horse, but so again, it's, yeah. it's, you can tell a kid, come on, you know, breathe deep, you know, and mm-hmm. let's get present. And they're like, you're so boring, dude. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be present, uh-huh. but you get them on a big old horse and, you know, and the smell of a horse, the, yeah, you know, it's tactile. Yeah. It's, the tag, the, mm-hmm. just everything. And so, you know, you just, I just have witnessed so many children come off horses in a totally different state, so mm-hmm. present and, and wanting, you know, they may not want to do anything all week. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. You, you go to oh, horses, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, and, yeah. but because it is, it's, you know, it's tactile, it's um, olfactory, it's, yeah, it's kinesthetic, kinesthetic. It's, yeah. there's, there's balance, there's, yeah. you know, it hits everything. everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just mm-hmm. amazing. And yeah. so anyhow, um, trying to go forward with those approaches is, is what I have been doing because I've seen it's worked. Mm-hmm. And when I worked with the at-risk kids, um, I was part of a wilderness program and we'd go, you know, 12 days, mm-hmm. 14 days backpacking with no resupply. And we'd get back and, and we'd have, you know, psychiatrist or, you know, on staff. And these kids would do more in, in 12 days than mm-hmm. they'd done in six right. months or a year, Absolutely. you know, for personal responsibility mm-hmm. and, and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, just that, that the ability to be self-aware and what your needs are and, mm-hmm. and to talk. So anyhow, yeah. it's naturalistic approaches for me have proven to be the most effective. And that's why I continue to pursue those realms because, um, Cause they work. <laughs> yeah. And, and they've worked for me. I mean, mm-hmm. save my butt, you know, yeah. the nature, if I didn't have nature, God knows, you know, I, mm-hmm. I had a pretty crazy childhood. And so, um, so it was the woods that saved me. And, mm-hmm. and I think, just about all my family. I mean, I look Mm -hmm. at my sibs and um, they're all attached. Yeah. So um, that's really pretty. I mean, there's a couple of questions that I had down originally that I didn't ask you. So I guess I'll just conclude by saying, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah, no, I think we really covered um, everything. You know, the, the thing is um, taking away, erasing the idea that kid, that the kids are different. Right. That there's something yes. wrong with them, that there's something, you know, just that they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps to level all the tables. And and by doing so, all of a sudden, what kids thought were obstacles or things that they could never reach, all of a sudden, those big barriers that block their view for what they could achieve are dissolved. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, they can see much farther in the realm of possibility for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so by taking away stigmas, um, the jargon, you know, the, the words, Mm -hmm. the labels and allowing them to be just part of the continuum of humanness. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it helps their peers too. I mean, not just their peers, but it helps the kids that are on a different side of the continuum, you know, because when, when, when we see normalization of human abilities in a classroom, Right. When we see the kids that come in who are different and the teacher advocates for those kids and the kids start advocating for them as well. You know, I've been in many classrooms where there's a little child that can't talk or maybe even has some, you know, uncomfortable behaviors like pulling hair or hitting themselves or, you know, whatever that might be. And 
when we see the teachers freaked out by those kids, then the other kids are also freaked out by them. But when we see the teacher accepting and teaching the other kids, oh, you know, Johnny needs, you know, right. this thing, or or here's how to here's how to hold a book for him. He loves books. Then kids want to do that. So it's really it's just increasing our capacity as humans. Absolutely. You know? I had the, this note here is that, you know, kids shouldn't have to worry about assimilating into their classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, who's assimilating and, and who's the assimilator and who's the assimilatee? Mm-hmm. You know, there should be this constant or, or a continuum where uh, we are, you know, we're all in the same, we're all human here. And, um, and I'm not trying to change myself to, be acceptable to you and you shouldn't have to try to change to be acceptable to me. We just accept each other as we are Mm -hmm. and, and get to go on and, you know, traverse this life with the tools that we have. And, and, um, you know, and hopefully the, the love that we are given Mm -hmm. and um, make the world a better place. Yep. That's what it's all about. (laughs) Well, it's been lovely interviewing you. (laughs) <laughs> it's been lovely to be interviewed on this Valentine's Day. That's right. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in, and um, we'll catch you later. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Outrageous and Vulnerable Podcast with your host, Cynthia Coupe. Don't forget to comment, rate, subscribe, and share this with people you love, people you like, even people you don't like so much. And remember, do something outrageous and vulnerable, of course.